Good morning again. Good morning. I hope you've been blessed by the service so far and I uh, hope you're ready for the uh, sermon this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 23. If you don't have a Bible, you'll probably want a Bible today because we're going through a fair number of scripture verses and there are Bibles at the back table over there if you don't have one. Okay. Isaiah chapter 28. Verse 23, we'll read to verse 29 this morning. Okay, now this is the Lord speaking here. Let's read. Uh, Give ye ear, and hear my voice. Hearken, and hear my speech. Doth the ploughman plough all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin, and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? For his God doth instruct him to discretion, and doth teach him. For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin. But the fitches are beaten out with a staff and the cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised, because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father in heaven, we thank you once again that you are our teacher and our guide. And we pray that your spirit will be um, teaching and instructing us even now, helping us to understand your word and helping us to apply it to our lives. We thank you once again for the blessing we have of being able to rely on this precious word that we hold in our hands, which you have preserved for us, that we might grow through it. And Father, I pray that we would commit our lives to you, commit this time to you, and Lord, you will bless our hearts that we might grow fully in the knowledge of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would use me to instruct my brethren here and to bless them with this message, and I pray that you would always hide me behind your cross. Um, that Jesus might be shown. I pray this in his precious name. Amen. Every fortnight for the uh, past year, we've had a a teens uh, group study over here at church on a Friday evening. And uh, this past Friday, just a couple of days ago, we had our final one for the year. And as part of the lesson, there was a, a, a test at the end of it. So they had to study for this test, which is never pleasant for any student. Um, but they did very well, and uh, they revised, and they actually uh, they, they filled out the quiz at the end. And as part of the last lesson, uh, we invited them to um, submit questions, which they didn't have to put their name down. They actually just write them on a little piece of paper and put them in the, a little box. And, and we invited them to actually ask us the most difficult and uh, troublesome questions that they knew or they had in their own lives or could come up with. So whenever you ask those sorts of things, you could end up with anything. But here are some of the questions they came up with. So these are 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. If Jesus will be coming back on a horse, does it mean that there are horses in heaven now? Was Judas saved? What will happen after the devil is put in hell? 
Can a Christian be forgiven if they commit the unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Would God punish someone who is saved who's living in sin? How long would God allow a saved person to live in sin for? Pretty deep questions for 13 year olds and 14 year olds. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to uh, share those with you because um, I want you to understand these are the sorts of questions that are running through the minds of 15 year olds. Okay? <clears throat> and it's the last two questions that I shared with you which provoked the most amount of discussion, the most amount of, of feedback, and it looked as if they were, they were the ones that were actually affecting them. In other words, how does God discipline his children? And the, and the question, and, and those two questions are very relevant. Does God punish someone who's a Christian who is living in sin? Does he punish them? And then the, the next question was, that, you know, how long does he allow someone to live in sin for as a Christian? Now, they're not easy questions to answer. But we answered them through the, the word of God and we, we appealed to principles in the Bible. We looked at examples of how God has dealt with other believers. Um, we, we looked at the relationship the Bible teaches us about what we have with the Lord. And we also looked at the unchanging character of God as the four main things. If you've got, a, if you've got an important question in your life or something that doesn't seem to make sense, if you rely on those things... If you go back to those things and you study the Word of God, there are answers to these questions. And the Bible gives us a clear picture of how the Lord deals with his children. And this dealing begins with the love of the Father for his children. But it doesn't end there. You see, that's one aspect of how God is to us. Yeah, we're his children. And he's our father, our spiritual father. But there are different aspects. So as we go through our days as his children, we can better understand what it is God wants from us if we understand we have this relationship as a father to a child. But it's also good to know that we have a relationship with him as a disciple to a master or a student to a master or to a teacher. That's the same sort of relationship that we have with him. It's another aspect of it. We also have the aspect of an athlete to a coach. So what, what relationship does an athlete have who's training for the Olympics have with their coach, their mentor? And we also have the relationship of a soldier to his commander. Okay? So I'm going to focus on those four today. I'd like us to look at those, those um, different aspects of how God relates to us. So when it comes time to understanding how he disciplines us, we also understand, if you look at it from those aspects, the complete picture of how God is with us. I'm not saying this is actually complete uh, by any stretch of the imagination because God relates to us in many, many different ways and on many, many different levels. But if we understand these four aspects, we have a much fuller picture of how God is with us because we are soldiers in his army. We're his children. So it's like, like being the commander of an army and your child is in that, in that regiment that he's, that he's commanding. But at the same time, we're actually students in a classroom 
Our whole lives are like students. And we have this teacher who's teaching us. And we also have the relationship of an athlete to his coach. You know, when I was growing up and going to school, and I'm sure you've all said the same words, why do I have to learn this? Why am I learning like this, you know, like trigonometry or, or some other thing that you think to yourself? And, and I, I, I imagine that all of you have used this phrase, I'm never going to use that. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I'll never use that. We've all said it. Part of the challenge we have as students is not understanding why we have to learn certain things. True? But the teacher knows why. Because the teacher understands the progress or the direction that the mind has to be trained in to reach a certain level of understanding and application. So a student, when they go in the classroom... You know, and the teacher says, all right, lesson today is this one. I'm sure that every teacher's put in some amount of effort teaching things that are related one to the other, that build on, on the one previously. It doesn't, the teachers do not just teach a random set of things, hoping that they're going to hit the mark somewhere. There is a progression. When an athlete's being trained and the coach gets them to run, all right, I want you to run from here to there and back again, and he's timing them time after time after time. And then he gets them to run around a track. And then he gets them to do weight training. And then he gets them to do other disciplinary things. He gets them to jump down on the spot a hundred times. I mean, that would look silly to someone who's not, who does, has nothing to do with athletics. But the coach knows why. Because the coach would understand what type of muscles need to be developed and what type of skills need to be honed. And he knows because the goal of that, of that coach is to get that athlete primed for a particular task. And it may be the Olympics or it may be to, to join a team or it may be to do whatever. Does the athlete always understand what the coach is asking them and why? Guaranteed they don't. Same thing with a student. When you're a child growing up in a family, I'm sure you understood every rule and regulation your parents gave you, didn't you? And you never questioned them. We know the ones who are causing the most problems, don't we? <laughs> of course we didn't understand most of the rules our parents set down for us. But when we ourselves became parents, we understood much better those same rules. But as a child, you don't necessarily understand them. And it's the same thing in an army. When you're a soldier and you're a cadet or you're training, you might not understand all the pain and punishment you have to go through to be a soldier. They're going to make you climb over walls and climb under things and go through the mud and, and be abused. And, and why, why do they put them through all that pain for, really? Why can't they just teach me to shoot a gun? Well, the reason is that when you're in the battlefield, you may need to have those other skills in order to survive and in order to be able to work with and protect your other people and other men in the same uh, regiment. So, from this perspective, the student, the athlete, the child and the, um, the soldier doesn't always understand why they're being asked to do things, why they find themselves in certain things. And I would suspect that most Christians 
are asking the same questions of God. Why am I in this situation? Why is God allowing me to go through this particular thing? Why does God not... I'm sure none of you have asked those questions. I'm being facetious. But if we understand that we are in God's family, we are on God's team, we are Jesus' disciples, and we are in the army of the Lord, when we understand it from those aspects, we'll actually have a better understanding of why God allows us to go through certain things. What we need to be fully convinced about here is that today and throughout all of our days is that God is an amazingly good parent. Amazingly good parent. If you thought to yourselves that you had good parents growing up, what I can guarantee you today is that God is a much better parent than your, your earthly parents. Much better. Loves you more, knows you better and has a better um, desire for you to grow. God is not only an amazingly good parent, he is a wonderful coach. He knows exactly what we need to get us to our destination. He is a perfect teacher. Perfect. And he's a magnificent leader in chief. He is the best commander of an army ever. He never makes a mistake. Never lost a battle. And will never ever lose a war. So just as every one of these professions requires them to not only know what's best for those under them, but to want the best for, un for those under them. I'm sure if there are teachers here that you want the students that are under you to succeed, don't you? You don't want them to fail. You put the effort in to actually make them succeed, to actually pass, to learn, to grow. The same thing with a commander. He want, The desire is for their, his soldiers to succeed, not to get killed on the battlefield. Same thing with a coach. He wants those that are under him that he's training to actually win the medal, to be successful in what they do. And any, any good parent wants his children to grow and to succeed. If you believe that, if you can believe that for earthly people, then today don't have any doubt about God's intentions for you. Because God's intentions are always so far above our earthly teachers and commanders and parents and coaches that we can't even understand how, how much better he is. So never ever doubt God's desire for you, that he wants the absolute best for you. And having said that, we should always keep in mind that no matter what the circumstances in our lives are, no matter what we may be going through, is that he is in it for our good. Yeah, you may be experiencing some difficult times. You may even think to yourself, I'm hitting the edge of my tether here. I'm reaching the edge. But there is one thing the Bible tells us, that he loves us so much that he gave us his only son. And that love hasn't diminished. That love is just a sign of how much he loves us. He is never changing. He loves with the same love that he, that he had 2,000 years ago and he loves us with a love that we can't even properly quantify. He is in it for our good. And not only is he in it for our good, he is the best at what he does and he methodically gives us what we need to improve daily. 
Just as every student, child, soldier and athlete goes through pain in order to grow, so too do the children of God. He guarantees it. Sorry. He guarantees it. He guarantees suffering for us. So it's important for us that we learn to trust him. That's what this life is about. Learning to trust him. If you can trust your earthly parents, your earthly, the people that are in charge of you, then I'm going to challenge you today to trust God for your life. And that trust doesn't mean just something that's completely blind because the Bible has taught us over and over again through the history of mankind that God loves us. How much more does the Bible say that he loves us when we're his children, when he's adopted us into his family? So it's important for us to trust him because if there is anything the devil will try to do, first of all, is to break the trust between you and God. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. He broke the trust that existed between them. There was perfect trust in that relationship. He managed to convince them that God wasn't in it for their good. God was withholding something because he didn't want them to be like him. So the, the, this, this uh, scoundrel lied from the beginning to break the trust and he will try and do it with you in your life every day. As I said before, we may not know everything that God's got working around us and all the things that are going on in the background, but I'll tell you something, he does. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. There is nothing that catches him unaware. We can trust him because he not only is in it for our good, but he's perfect in his strategy and methodology. And this is where our part comes into it. Obedience. One of the main tests of whether you trust God or not is whether you choose to obey him. Would you agree? In fact, Jesus says the main test of our love for him is whether we'll obey him. He simply says it. If you love me, you will obey my commands. But a measure of trust the measure of trust that we have for God is automatically shown in our, in our desire to obey his word. If there's no desire to obey his word, let's not kid ourselves. We don't trust him. Imagine for a moment that a student who is instructed by their teachers says, I don't trust that teacher. He's useless. I'm not going to bother to study. I'm not going to bother to read. I'm not going to bother to do what he tells me to do. What chance does a student actually have of ever passing an exam or test? No. Zippo. And the soldier who says to, about his commander, I don't trust his command for me. I'm going to go and do it on my own. How long will that su soldier survive in a, in a war? Well, the child who says, I refuse to obey my parents' commands. If you come from an Italian background, you're not going to last very long. <laughs> but this is my point. Our part is to trust. And the trust that we have in him will reflect in whether we're willing to obey. Don't ever kid yourself by saying, Oh, I trust God. I trust him for my eternal salvation. I've put my soul in his hands. 
for eternity. I'm looking forward for him to, to bring me to heaven and save me from hell. I believe in what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on that cross. But then on a day-to-day level, you say, uh, 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 I'm going to do this thing my way. Really? Can we do that? Well, no, we're not going to do it my way. That's the last song we want to be singing. Yeah. The results that the Lord obtains in our lives are directly related to how we trust Him. I'll tell you something. If we refuse to trust Him and obey, you can be crying every day of your life about the circumstances that you find yourself in. Because you're like the child who's refused to study. You're like the disobedient child who's, who's running amok in the house. You're like a soldier who's refused to learn how to use his weapon. You're like an athlete that says, Oh, I, I want the goal. I want the medal. But you know something? I can't be bothered actually doing any training for it. Think about those people and how you would respond to them being like that with the people that are above them. It's foolishness. So the way we trust God will reflect in our obedience and our choices every day with him. If you find yourself in, in some serious situations today let me share with you probably the, what the main reason might be that you're refusing to obey him and 90% of the problems we find ourselves in are simply a result of this that we reap what we sow God has not taken that principle away from his own children he allows his children to actually reap the decisions or the fruits of their own decisions. And if he has rebellious children, you know something? He's going to let us, to a certain extent, feel the pain of those decisions. Today, I would like to emphasise the importance of understanding both parts of this equation. God is the instructor who wants the best for us and is willing to, and as us, as willing participants, looking for that expert training that we need to achieve our goals. And my question to you today is, what is your goal? What is the goal of your life? Because if you have a different goal to the one of your coach, your teacher, your parent or your commander, you're going to be going in two different directions. It's imperative that our goals are the same as his. So today my, my question to you is, what's your, what are your goals? Are your goals aligned with his goals? Because I'll tell you what one of his goals is. To make us holy. He wants to make us holy. He wants us to be like Jesus. He wants us to live, to think, and to act like he does. And if you don't have that goal in your life, then what goal are you striving for? To get money? To build a career? To secure your your future? To do what? To have a family? I mean, all these things are okay in and of themselves. But if your overarching goal is not to be holy like he is, not to draw closer to him and be more like your saviour, then I'm telling you, you are wasting your time because the time we have now is short and we will one day give an account as his children. When we come before him and we've actually got nothing to show, I'm telling you, it will be the saddest day of your life. It won't be rejoicing. 
When the Bible says that God's going to wipe away all of our tears, they're not necessarily tears here. I think they're going to be tears up there. When we look back at our lives and he says, Now, my son, let's have a look and see what you've done for your whole life. Let's see all the lessons that I tried to teach you along the way. Let's see all the opportunities I presented to you that you might bear fruit for me. And if we have nothing to show, I'm telling you that you and I will walk into eternity with nothing to show. That's not a good place to be. So I want you to ask yourself this question or these questions. Am I a willing student? Do I trust him? Are my goals aligned with his? Because I want to show you today, and I don't think we're going to get through this sermon at all today. We may have to put it over two, over two, um, over two uh, sermons. Am I a willing student? Are my goals aligned with God as my parent, my coach, my teacher, and my leader, Jesus Christ? Or if I, am I off on my own tangent? Am I growing with the Lord? Is my life a disaster because of the decisions that I've made that I then go blaming God for? In this 28th chapter of Isaiah, it says that God was judging Israel, or Ephraim in particular, once again for their rejection of his word. He was judging them. It's, he, was, he says that very plainly. He says their prophets were prophesying lies just to build themselves up in the eyes of the king and whoever else was around, to make themselves look good. The prophets were prophesying lies. The priests were getting drunk and not teaching the people what they were supposed to be teaching. They were teaching them lies. Their leaders weren't heeding the warnings and the judgments that were about to come upon them. God's saying, I'm sending, there's something coming along. You better be careful. And they're saying, oh, don't be ridiculous. Meanwhile, they're relying on people who are, list, who are telling them what they want to hear. And God says, be careful here. There's judgment coming to you. And instead of listening to his prophets who were warning the people about their lifestyle and what, what was coming from the other side, it says that they were mocking Isaiah and they were mocking his prophets. And there are plenty of people who mock the word of God now. It's like a mockery in this world. If you hold up the Bible, it's almost, it's almost like it's a, it's a joke. I'm telling you, if you don't have the word of God living in your heart, you will not see life. Because salvation comes through the word of God. So God's warning them about their deceitfulness, that they've gone off track, and he's warning them. And he says in verse 16, look at chapter 28, verse 16. In Isaiah. It says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Who's he speaking about? Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's a prophecy. That Jesus actually referred to himself. That God would one day put a foundation stone in place that whoever relies on that foundation will not be, will not be dismayed, will not be let down. This is obviously a prophecy about Jesus, but it also had meaning in their day. 
And God was simply saying that he will not allow this behavior to go on forever. And he's got some plan going on. And you're talking hundreds of years in the future, God is saying, I'm going to put a foundation stone in place. But until then, you better start listening to what I'm telling you. And he will not allow this sort of behavior to go on forever. He was planning on on doing something that will change the world forever. In the meantime, he wanted them to know that he's dealing with them like this for now. But he's not going to deal with them like this forever. God changes the way he deals with his people and with his children depending on what their circumstances are at the time. God always has an overarching strategy. God always has a plan. And the plan was right for them then and the plan is right for you and me now. God never makes mistakes with us. He was building towards tomorrow. So let's look and see what God is teaching in this particular passage. It says, give ye ear in verse 23. Give ye ear and hear my voice. Hearken and hear my speech. Does the plowman plough all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed of barley and the rye in their place? In verse 24, God asks a couple of simple questions that are meant to teach one important truth. And the answer to these particular questions is yes, he does. The ploughman or the farmer doesn't just plough the ground for no reason at all. He doesn't just plough forever, does he? He's ploughing for a reason. He's preparing the soil to do what? To put the seed in there. Because if the soil is hard, the seed can't penetrate the actual ground. It'll be eaten by the birds. So the reason a ploughman ploughs the ground is to break up the ground, is to allow the seed to penetrate the actual ground. So the answer to that question is yes, he does. He ploughs the ground in order to sow. He's preparing the ground for a reason. And doesn't he, doesn't he open and, and, and break the clods of his ground? Yes, he does. Open and break the, cl- the clods of his ground. And when you run, I don't know if you've ever seen, when you run a, a, a plough through the ground and the ground's been hard for a while, it lifts up and, 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 and creates, it opens up a furrow in the actual ground. But sometimes you get these big clods of dirt that, that it breaks up, but it doesn't, that doesn't actually make them soft. So you then have to go, if, depending on the type of seed you've got, and break those clods because you don't want huge clods of dirt because then the seeds won't be properly covered. So the answer to that question is also yes. He does break up the clods of his ground. So after he runs this, this, um, this plough through the ground up in, in lines, up and down, up and down, up and down. And normally they'd have a, they'd be, they'd have a beast of burden at the front who'd have a, a yoke around his neck. And then as he pulls, the plough actually digs up the ground. Like, it's almost like a knife breaking through the ground. But if the, if the clumps of dirt are too big, he has to break those up as well. And in verse 25, it says, When he hath made plain the face thereof, which means he, it's all beautiful and level, and it's all nice, there's no big bits, bits and pieces all over the place. When it's made play, plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin, and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? The scripture here teaches us that once the ground has been made ready, it's ready for sowing. It's ready to put the seed in there. And the picture is... 
of a beautifully, perfectly consistent ground ready to receive that seed. He then goes on to say, depending on the type of seed you've got, you're going to put it in different ways. You see, some seed, as he mentions here, the fitches and the cumin are scattered. How do you scatter seed? Like that. Okay? But there are some seeds, like barley and rye, that are actually put in their place, in their appointed place, which means the lines that he's created are the lines where those things are actually put in there. They're not scattered. Those seeds have to be put in a line. So when they grow, they grow in a line. Just as a farmer, what's God saying here? Just as a farmer does not suppose that he can obtain a harvest by just ploughing all day, day after day after day. It would be absurd to suppose that God deals with us as his people and with Israel the same way all the time. God deals with mankind has dealt with his own people in different ways through different periods of, of their existence. But in all of these things, God has a plan. He doesn't prepare the hearts of men for no reason at all. You see, that picture of preparing that ground is a perfect picture of what Jesus said. You remember when he, when he talked about the sower of the seed? And said some of that seed fell on the, on, on the path, some fell on stony ground, some fell on... Any more you can think of? There's stony ground. There was a pathway... There was good soil, obviously. Sorry? And thorns. The ones that choke the seed. You see, if the ground isn't properly prepared, the seed can't actually enter. What's the seed? The seed is the word of God. So God prepares the heart first in order to, for a person to receive that seed. And if it actually takes root and it starts to grow... If it has the proper soil, then it will grow and bear fruit. That's the goal, bearing fruit. And farmers know all too well that they don't just do the same thing over and over again. They do it to obtain a harvest. And God does the same thing with us. God wants us to bear fruit in our lives. The gospel, when the gospel was preached, we are, our lives are a harvest for God when we got saved. But now God wants us to start planting as well. He wants us to make sure our hearts are ready, which means that he is working on our hearts even now. So look at your life as look at your life as God buying you as a plot of land. And in your in your block, in your land, it was full of thorns, rocks, weeds and everything else. And God said, I want to buy this plot for myself. And I'm going to see whether it actually grows anything. And he actually planted a seed of the gospel in our hearts. And it grew. And God said, this is mine. God bought the whole block. And now the rest of our lives are about God clearing that block. God preparing that block. God making sure that he digs out all those stones removes all the weeds. He's working now and he's working in our hearts. Why is he working in our hearts for? He's working in our hearts so that the word of God might actually continue to be planted one seed after the other and that 
In our lives, we can bear fruit for God. God doesn't deal the same with all of us. Each of us has a different soil. Some of us have a lot more rocks. Some of us have less. Some of us have most of it's been cleared or some of it's been cleared. Some of us still have a lot of thorns that are, that are there that need to be removed. But where we're at depends largely upon how willing we are to be worked on. So God's illustration doesn't stop here. Look at verse 27. For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument. Neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin, but the fitches are beaten out with a staff and a cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it, nor breaking it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. Fitches and, and cumin seeds were not put through a threshing instrument to obtain from the actual uh, stalk. They were beaten with a staff or a rod. One is larger than the other one. Ever know what, you know which is larger? A rod or a staff? <coughs> Staff's longer. A staff is longer, okay? And a rod is smaller, okay? You know the, where the, where the uh, Psalm 23 says... It speaks about the shepherd's staff and rod. They comfort me. Your staff and your rod, they comfort me. You like that? A staff, if you're a shepherd, you'd want a big stick. And the big stick is not to hit the, the sheep with. The big stick is if a wolf comes along, you want a big stick to keep the wolf away. And also, once you land a couple of good blows with a big stick, the wolf will feel it and run away. A rod is a smaller thing. It doesn't have the same impact. You don't want to be hitting or keeping away a wolf with a rod, maybe. But a rod can be used to hit the sheep along. So one is a disciplinary thing, one is a judgment thing. But there's two aspects to that. One is you're comforted by his protection of you with the staff, but you're also comforted by the fact that he actually disciplines us. And it's the same thing with this. Cut, when God cuts through this broken ground that we have in our lives and in our hearts, it's sometimes a very painful process. It's painful. It's not easy. When God removes thorns and takes out rocks, sometimes it's not easy for God to do that in our lives. But the next part of the equation is that when God wants to actually get the fruit from the actual thing, Sometimes it takes another round of beating. You see, if you've ever seen the way they collect um, sesame seeds, I love sesame seeds. If you've ever watched how they collect sesame seeds, um, they, they just bunch up all these branches together and they just take to them with a stick. They take to them with a stick and they have a sheet underneath and it collects all the sesame seeds from the actual uh, sheet, on the actual sheet. So it gets beaten. If you're an olive tree in Italy, you'd be beaten as well. They beat the olive trees and the, the olives fall down. They don't pick them all one by one. There are some things that need to be beaten. There are some things that need to go through a threshing instrument that rips it apart. And that happens with things like wheat and stuff like that. You don't just hit wheat to take the actual 
grain out of the actual stalk, out of its, out of its husk. So there's a principle here that we learn. God doesn't always use the same principle to get the fruit out of our lives. In some cases, he'll beat with a rod or with a staff. That speaks about our discipline. Sometimes we've actually, God's planted the seed in our heart and something's growing and the fruit is actually growing. But we don't want to give it to God. And God sometimes has to take to us with a stick. And we say to ourselves, uh, hang on a sec. I went through a whole lot of pain just to prepare the ground of my heart. Now to extract the fruit, you're going to beat me again? You're going to allow me to go through more pain now? Yes. Yes. God has a specific way of dealing with whatever fruit that he wants from us. And he'll make sure he gets it. In our heart are soils... Uh, sorry, in our hearts or souls are seen, uh, if, there's, if our hearts and souls are seen as the ground in which the seed is planted, then it's evident from this passage that just as there are stages that a farmer must go through in order to get the rewards for his labour, so our hearts are prepared by God in, stage, in stages and his desire is to get fruit from our lives. That's the ultimate aim. If you look at the parable of a sower, there's only one that was saved, the one that produced fruit. The rest didn't produce anything. Turn with me to John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus repeats a very similar principle in John chapter 15. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. That's the guy who looks after the vines. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. What's purging me? He's cutting. He keeps cutting. So if you bear fruit, he's going to cut even more. Because he wants more. He wants the best possible return from your life. Not just for his sake, because he gets glorified with the fruit, but for yours. Because Jesus says that we are to what? To build up our treasure in heaven. God wants us to have treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. And he wants the more fruit we produce, the more we'll have up there. I have taught this before. Not every, not every person in heaven will be the same. By no means. There will be those who will be so rich and wealthy because they produce so much for the Lord that we might be looking at them and saying, wow. They might be so close to the Lord compared to where we're going to be sitting. Tell me, where's your desire? In heaven, do you want to be sitting close to him? Do you want him to say, wow, look at what you've brought me in over here? Or just you don't care? Our salvation was the beginning. It wasn't the end. Most Christians treat their salvation as if that's it. 
God's done everything now. It's all good to go. I'm going to be in heaven. Fantastic. Yes, celebrate. Every day of your life, you should be celebrating that because we've been adopted into God's family. But that's not the end. It's the beginning of God making us holy, of God producing fruit through us. And Jesus says that he is divine. If you're attached to him, you're saved. If you're not attached to him, you're not producing anything at all. And look at verse 8 in John chapter 15. He says, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear a little bit of fruit. So shall you be my disciples. I've got the, I've got the alternative King James Bible over here. God is glorified when we bear much fruit. Much. And he wants us to bear that fruit in our lives. And he is going to get it. And he'll discipline us if we have to, if he has to. We have been saved to bear fruit. We have not to be, we're not saved just to, just to sit around. God has purchased the field of our hearts and he's working on us daily. The question is, have you locked him out? Have you said, nah, this is all too painful for me. I'm, I'm closing the gate over here. You stay out there for a while. Your stuff is a bit too hard for me. I'll close up with just the three examples of what God does in our lives. The ploughing of our hearts by the Lord is the first stage of his work in our lives. The first seed that went in was a seed of the gospel which produced the fruit of salvation in our lives. And you and I may have gone through some difficult times before we got saved. I know many people went through difficult times before they got saved. They may have been persecuted while they were talking about maybe the, the choice they were about to make with their family or with their friends or with their work colleagues. Maybe you struggled with your friends, your family, your old lifestyle. Maybe the world, when you were thinking about actually becoming a Christian, was drawing you back to itself. The flesh, no doubt, was rioting because it didn't want you to make that decision. But the word of God is able to prepare the ground of your heart enough so that the seed was sown, the plant grew and fruit was accomplished. And your life may be at varying stages now. You may have allowed your field to go, grow over with weeds again. And God is saying, let me work on it. Let me work on, on this heart. And it depends on how you respond. The Bible says that we need to believe. But you need to trust God. If you can trust God to save your eternal soul, then trust God to work on your life. So ploughing is when God breaks the ground. And it may be painful for you and me, and this may go on for a, a while. It may involve trouble. It may involve persecution in our lives. It may involve suffering and pain. And these things may be present in your life already. But they may be there. They may be present in your life now because God is preparing you to receive a particular type of seed. And unless he prepares your ground, he can't plant it. It won't take. And once he does plant the seed in your heart, it's called sowing. 
And that is when we receive some important truth that God wants us to understand and accept. It requires the heart, but also a willingness to receive the truth. It may come directly, that truth may come directly from the Word of God. It may come through a sermon that's preached from the front over here. It may come from a video that you watch, the words of a friend or the combination of these. But it, was all, it will always be some important principle that God's been trying to break through in your life. From the Word of God. You may have even heard it 100 times before in your life. But at one particular time, the light bulb goes on. That hundredth time maybe that you heard it, you say, hang on a sec. Now it makes sense. You know what that is? It means God's been preparing your heart for that truth. And his spirit has now given you understanding. It's taken root. For that root to take place and for that plant to grow, for the fruit to produce, um, for the seed to produce fruit, it needs time to grow. This can take a long time or a short time. And God may be preparing you for another fruit while one is, one is growing. During this time, it's important to guard the truth that you've already learned. Be aware of the lessons that God has taught you in your life. Write them down if you have to. Don't forget them. Because it will come time that God needs to thresh and to beat. Threshing is where more pain is normally involved in order to yield that fruit. As we've said before, sometimes God's going to beat you with a big stick or a small stick or put you through a threshing machine. But in the end, he wants that fruit. He wants you to produce the fruit. And you may say, I, I can't bear it. I don't want to go through more pain. Why haven't, why haven't you stopped with this pain? Because God's got something else prepared for you. And I'll tell you something. If Jesus had to go through pain to bear the fruit, then why should we complain? Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus had to be beaten for the fruit to come. If Jesus was not beaten, if he wasn't bruised, if he wasn't wounded, we would not be here. Do you understand? If our saviour had to be beaten for the fruit to actually come about, which is us, then what makes us so proud and arrogant that we would think that we shouldn't go through suffering? Jesus teaches us plainly that no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted him, they will persecute us. You and I are testaments. We are the fruits. We are the fruits of his punishment. He won our forgiveness. He won our peace. He won healing for us. And it cost him a whole lot more than we ever, ever will put in. Did Jesus have faith? 
perfect faith. Was Jesus deficient in any way? Not at all. Never sinned. Never, never broke any relationship, any command that his father had given him. If he had to endure that pain, then let me ask you a question. Why do we complain? Why is the first thought that comes in our minds when we go through sufferings, why is God letting me go through this again? How can God do this to me? Really? Fruit that God wants from our lives is a result of our obedience to him. And through afflictions and persecutions and sufferings, God is glorified in our lives. He is glorified. When you obey the word of God, it will bring suffering. I'm going to close with an example. Someone you don't like. Let me share just, just an example with you. Okay? Someone you don't like. This person has been a problem for you for many years. So you decide to avoid this person. You just say to yourself, I don't want to know that person. I'm going to avoid them. I don't want to know them. But that person may have been chosen for you to bear fruit. So God prepares your heart. God wants you to learn a lesson. He wants you to begin to love that person through sermons and passages on love that you read in the Bible and you hear. That God keeps prodding you to make a difference in this person's life. God may even allow you to be to, for you to be rejected by another person the same way you rejected them to teach you a lesson about how they might be feeling. But you don't notice it. But the Spirit keeps prompting, prompting you day after day, week after week. And you hear and you sense things a lot about love and forgiveness. But you resist for a while. When God thinks that your ground is ready to go, you know what he does? He brings that person back in front of you, in front of your path. He does it. In some strange way. You then have a choice. Your ground's been prepared and God wants to, he's planted the seed. You understand about forgiveness now. Now he wants you to actually act. The plant's grown the fruit hasn't been harvested yet. So you choose to show that person love. You say, all right, I'll put the past behind me. I'm going to show this person forgiveness and love. I'm going to show them exactly what it means to be a Christian. And when you do, they tell you they want nothing to do with you. They say, how dare you come to me and try and forgive me? You did this thing to me all these years ago and now you want to forgive me forget it so that person rejects you rejects your offer of love rejects your forgiveness rejects what you think God wants you to do you realize that person has over the years built up all this resentment towards you because of the way you've been treating them maybe for years you didn't talk to them you didn't say hello to them you avoided them and they knew it Maybe you went and said something to someone else about them as well. And it got back to them. So no, they're not going to accept your offer of love. 
and you ask, oh, why God are you putting through this pain again? I learned a lesson here. I'm trying now to show love. And God says, I need to beat a bit more to obtain this fruit. God wants you to persist. The grain is not threshed out in one go, but requires a certain number of heats to get it out. So you obey and persist. You continue to show love and to show mercy. This is the suffering that you were not expecting. It may go on for a short while or it may go on for a long while. The fruit is collected by God either way. Whether that person continues to reject you forever or whether that person comes around and you become friends again. But maybe, just maybe, your love will cause that person to learn a very valuable lesson that they need to know, that they need to see. And maybe the love and the consistent love that you show them in the face of their persecution is something that they then are ready to receive. That God wants to teach them. Maybe they will get saved as a result of your continuous love. God always knows the end from the beginning. We don't. And we don't have to. All we have to do is obey. And in the face of persecution and suffering, it's important for us to continue to do what he tells us to do. Today, I want to challenge you with this thought. If you're a student in God's classroom, if you're a child in God's family, if you're an athlete being coached by God to achieve the very best, if you're a soldier in the army of God, are you obeying him? Do you trust him? Because if you don't obey him, the odds are you don't trust him. And today is the day to start trusting him because our whole lives are that. If you're not saved today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, you haven't begun to trust him yet. Because the first step of trust is to do what? Is to trust what he did for you on the cross to save you from an eternity in hell. If you haven't trusted him for that, then you can forget about anything else that you're learning in church or you're, or you're doing in your life. It means zero. Unless you've been saved and adopted into God's family, all of it is for naught. The first step of trust is to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Saviour. To get him to save you, to allow him to save you from an eternity in hell. And then begins the relationship of trust. So my challenge to you today is, if you're not saved, trust him today. Trust him with all of your heart, with your eternal soul, because there is no one else you can trust. Not in heaven, not in hell, and not on the earth with your soul. And if you have put your trust in him for that, build that trust. Allow him to build that trust between you, between you, okay? And allow him to teach you what he wants you to teach, what he wants you to learn. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your loving kindness. We thank you, Father, for the word of God and for the ways in which you teach us in our lives. Father, I pray that you'd be gentle with us, with your discipline. I pray that you would draw us gently to yourself. 
Father, open up our eyes to your truth, Heavenly Father. We pray that we will be children who would be obedient, that would bring a smile to your face. We pray that our lives would, Father, bring you glory and not shame in this world. When people look at us, Father, and they see that they, we, you, we are your children, Father, I pray that they would say what a wonderful parent he is. Father, I pray that we would be obedient in this battlefield that we live in. I pray that we would continue to wield the sword of the Lord, the sword of the Spirit, that we would delve deeply into your word, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would continue to put on the full armour of God because we know we are in war. And we pray that we would continue to be mindful and watchful and Father, as athletes, I pray that we would run the race that you have set before us, that we would strive with all of our being, that we would win this race because you're worth every effort for. And Father, as your students, as your disciples, Father, help us be more and more like our teacher every day. Help us to be with him, to follow him, to imitate him in every possible chance and father i pray that when people see us they see him i pray that you bless us now as we enjoy some time together bless the rest of our day may it bring you the glory and the honor amen